Hello again, this is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid in the Web Yeshiva with another installment in our Jewish Educators Book Club. Today we're talking with Dr. Ellie Holzer, a senior lecturer at the School of Education at Bar-Ilan University, about his recent book, A Philosophy of Chavruta, Understanding and Teaching the Art of Text Study in Pairs, co-authored with Orit Kent and published by the Academic Studies Press. Uh, Ellie... A number of years ago, you uh, you led a uh, semester-long seminar with our Atid Fellows, and some of that work, I realize in reading the book, made its way into the research. This is something you've been uh, working on as an academician and as a practitioner of Jewish teaching for, for many years. So tell us a little background of your interest in the topic, some of which is described in rather uh, personal introduction uh, mm -hmm. about your own uh, experiences as a Jewish student going back to elementary school, uh, your interest in chavruta, in studying in pairs, Jewish texts in pairs, uh, as an academic subject. Thank you, uh, Jeffrey, uh, for inviting me uh, to talk about the book. Uh, yes, I think um, I'm going to say a few things about my journey as a researcher, but um, I can't separate, separate it from uh, my journey as a Jew, as a Jew, as a Jew for whom uh, Torah study is really central, uh, since I uh, actually remember myself being in a school and even at home. And in in retrospect, I would say that my my biography has uh, feeded my questions, which at some point and then I turned into research questions. So at the age of 11 or 12, I was uh, asked by my teacher in Belgium, back then in Jewish day school, uh, to turn around to my uh, friend and to study the Baba Metziah, Ilo Metziot, I think, the Daf Amut Bet or Gimel, I think, mm -hmm. and to look it up together as a Chavruta, which I had no clue. I mean, I knew the name, but we had no clue what we were supposed to be doing, yeah. right? And from there, all those years in Shiva Tichonit, uh, where I did have uh, Ramim who gave us some indications, but mostly about what Rashi to look up, what Tosva to look up. I mean, the indications uh, and the guidelines were basically on the content. Um, and then later on, Shiva Tezder, and then as a Ramim Shiva Tezder, and then as a teacher educator myself, as a teacher in the classroom, I, I think, I guess, more and more I had some reflective questions about why is this sometimes so helpful and sometimes it's just a waste of time. And it's not only a better of Beatlesman, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, what? Why, meaning why giving time over in the classroom to elementary or high school students to learn Bechevruta yeah. is either profitable or a waste of time? Yes. And, and I guess, and my assumption was, it's more than just individual differences or, you know, bad mood, good mood of the student. And, and in terms of education, I think the more I, I became acquainted with educational thinking and practice, I guess my question was, um, well, would there be ways by which we could help students, younger and maybe older, to grow into Chavuta learners? What would it take uh, to learn to become a better learner, which then led me to the question, what do I actually mean by a good Chavuta learner? Mm -hmm. And to break this down in some specific practices. Um, so on one hand, I always have been very cautious 
and until today, even putting out the book uh, was like a little uh, scary in the sense that I wanted to provide the readers, teachers, first and for all, with concrete examples of how to help people to grow into Hagoda learners. So I provided very specific tasks, learning exercises, experiences they could use in a classroom to help students go as a Hagoda learner. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I really am still very hesitant in that kind of work because I'm, I don't really believe that, it, that there is a longer list of to-do things that one just gives over to a teacher. I think the question what good Hevuta learning could look like and should look like is a question that needs to be addressed A in context, mean who are the students, what is it they know, what's the education philosophy of the school, what are the core beliefs in terms of learning or of, of the Kedusha of the text, obviously, etc. And at the same time, uh, I think the teachers should also have a voice in that in, in that debate. Mm -hmm. So I, I tried at the same time to be very practical, but at the same time also to invite the teacher in a kind of meta thinking that is yeah. very practical on one hand, but on the other hand is a conversation that as far as I know, and I hope I'm wrong, but as far as I know from having been in the field myself, is usually more anecdotal than anything else. In other words, what did you do? What can I do? But it doesn't take like a step back to think about what we actually do. And this, you know, the, the core approach to learning in our tradition is dialogical in three ways. First sense, is that uh, we are in constant dialogue uh, with the past that is given to us through text. Now, on one hand, we are trying to understand those texts to make them a part of our knowledge and our lives, but it's not only a t a t an intake. There is more than that. We want this to be percolating and, and operating in our lives. So there is some kind of dialogue between the learner Mm -hmm. who has like a deep trust in the, in, in, in the value of what's given to him, but, but that, that somehow takes it in and turns it to something of his own. So that's a third type of dialogue. So it's more than rote learning. Okay? People talk today about meaningful learning, in Hebrew they say, you know, but I, I, wanna, I think we, as educators, we, we should move beyond those, those buzzwords and actually ask ourselves what that actually could mean. The relationship to the text and to the past. Right. Yeah. The second dialogue is what hap what's happening in Chavuta or in a classroom. Between the two. Between the, the human beings, teachers, students, students and students, or learners and learners. I think this is, this is inherent to, to, to the type of learning that is, that is really very Jewish. Uh, um, and, and the third dialogue, which is much more, I would say, unseen, uh, is... Almost is, completely uh, unaware. Unaware yeah. is the one that happens in yourself. Yeah. Your, own, your own questions, beliefs, assumptions, surprises. Yeah. Uh, whenever you are confronted or exposed to ideas both from the text and or your partner, and taking the time to process those moments, be related, be relating to them, 
uh, I think is psychologically, educationally, all, you know, not less important than two other ones. So this, this third practice, what you call the intrapersonal, yes. um, wouldn't that be true even in a kind of completely frontal learning environment? Meaning, we, we hope that students become self-aware of the processes that they're undergoing, of the ideas that they're exposed to, of the texts that they're exposed to, of the, of the pedagogies, of the skills that we're trying to, uh, to uh, to train them in, um, how does that kind of intrapersonal processing differ when we're talking about a Havruta situation as opposed to good old-fashioned teacher with a piece of chalk standing and yammering on and on and on in front of the classroom? Well, I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure it's, it it really is different or should be different. Uh, my point is that. I would like to hope that anything that, the, that we do in Chavuta learning that is significant and deep will transfer in some ways to the other settings right. of formal education. Right. Uh, my point is that without wanting to kill it by reflecting about it, I think that we should open these kind of things. We used to say in English for discussion, but what, I don't mean for, for, an, for like a, just a coffee kind of discussion. Right. I'm talking about serious ways to attend to those moments, to articulate them. So we as teachers should allow this to happen. We need to provide language and opportunities for students to tackle down those things, which I want to say even more so, goes way beyond just the need for a student to express his or her own feelings or impressions at the moment. Right. What I mean by that is give the time, you know, so often, and obviously this depends on context, but so often I've seen students who would say at the outset, well, I love this text, or I'm not sure I really like that. End of discussion, mm -hmm. because then we, when, whenever we, 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 we are stopping there, we are in the realm of, I would say, the culture of, of opinions. And since we are usually pretty democratic in our spirit, we value people's voicing of their own opinion, but that's usually the end of discussion. I think this is a very, very uh, not helpful approach for learning. I would even say more for thorough learning, but for learning in general, I right. think this is, should be the beginning of discussion, but even not the beginning. I, I, I think really that the text here, that, that's another point I'm trying to make in the book, the text is not an object, it's almost a third partner, right. a With living a voice partner, of its own. a voice of its own, which we have the responsibility right. to give voice first, right. before we even say what we think. Well, so, I, just to make that point, I, so in other words, my point here is, let us take the time to give voice to the, to the text, first of what he's, he's trying to say, and then, what could be, you know, give it credit, give it, you know, give it a good read, mm -hmm. before you have to say what you think, and why, the why is, is you know, giving reasons for your opinions, and not just saving your opinions, I would say, is a fundamental element of, of learning in general, in my understanding of thorough learning in particular. Right. 
But what chapter eight is entitled "Dialoguing with the Text," yes. and that's the uh, it's the home address in the book for this uh, concept that you yes. just uh, that you just mentioned. But so much, I mean, you describe your own uh, personal experiences as a young learner. I remember mine. I'm sure our listeners each have their own anecdote. I'm sure many of them, most of them overlap in the experience of being thrown in front of a text which for many of us may very well have been written in Chinese. Um, even if we recognize the letters Aleph and Bet, uh, if we're talking about Gemara, so it's in Aramaic and uh, you sit there, maybe you have a dictionary. Uh, uh, the, my own experiences is with the days before all the translations became widely available and uh, and the internet mm -hmm. and, and other things that are that are tools to the learner and you sat there with the old-fashioned Jastra dictionary which itself required a whole technique to understand how to use because it wasn't a conventional dictionary it's a dictionary sure. principally of the root words the roots of the words which the novice learner has no way of determining and if you were lucky you got what we used to call a Jastro jackpot where the word you were looking up would bring as the example a few lines from the t particular piece of Gemara you were studying I remember that. so yes. that he did yes. the work yes. of translating yes. a yes. whole yes. line instead of just one, one word from you and you felt you know you had hit the jackpot. Uh, now you just look at the art scroll or the Steinsaltz or, or whatnot. Um, but much of the work, the overwhelming majority of time spent in Chavruta was simply decoding the words long before you could get to any kind of conversation of what do the ideas and the concepts and the values mean to me. So in one sense there's what do the words mean and then at a later stage it's what does this text mean. For most novice learners 98% of, of the time is, most Chavruta time is constructed to put the emphasis on decoding the words. Yes. Uh, how are you trying to reorient that? Uh, what are the suggestions in the book that, um, that would put more weight on the decoding of the text instead of the words uh, so that you have that dialogue? Right. So you're making a very important point, I think. Uh, I think that maybe the the professional technical word here, the behind what you're saying is scaffolding. Uh, you know, what teachers is trying to do is to scaffold learning. So, yes, I think everything that we know and we should even continue to do in terms of helping students to scaffold, the, you say decoding the text, I like the term, uh, could and should be done, obviously. Um, but I think on that basis and through that work, um, Obviously, what you're implying is that decoding is not enough, and it shouldn't be enough. And, and here I want to say, I think there are there might be slightly different processes when talking about a very, I would say, halachic, almost technical kind of text. You know, it's, you know, reading a a seif in the Shulchan Aruch is a certain type of reading and, and decoding that is very different than a sugiya in the Gemara or than a Midrash or Midrash Agada. Yeah. And we should be very sensitive about all those dynamics. And let's but, be clear, we're not only talking about the book doesn't only deal with the Torah Shabal Pet. Halachic texts, Talmud texts, you're also talking about studying Chumash and Bible and, yeah, and other yeah, things. Yeah. The, yes. the, and, and, the and, techniques and, here would be relevant for all fields of Jewish Yes, study. although I am personally very... I belong to this minority who, who believe that Pedagogy is not a universal uh, uh, wisdom. That yeah. means that the specific subject matter 
as has a say in what's in what's important, what's not important. Yeah. So here, so it is and it isn't universal. Yeah. I, I want to be careful with that. But, uh, but many of the examples in the book are drawn. There are examples in the book they, that are drawn from from various realms of Jewish studies, yeah. not just Talmud. Yes, although Talmud. although I did pick for the book more evocative texts, more yeah, agadic texts, because it raises specific issues like multiple interpretations, right. etc., which you have less of in other types of texts. Right. And and this is an important thing. But what tr- what we've been trying to do in this work and write down in the book is basically to say, listen. Um, this is not about a seminar or a special summer course on Chavuta learning. I think helping people to work Chavuta learning should be part of the curriculum in the classroom. Right. But that means also take, take time to take time and design learning classes and special classes where students have exercises and opportunities to engage, to reflect, to develop a language and to, I would say, to put their their, their feet in the water mm-hmm. in terms of working on those practices. So what are those practices? For instance, a very obvious one, questioning the text. What kind of questions? You know, one kind of question is like decoding. What does that mean, this yeah. word? But there are different other types of questions. So I think it, it's worth taking the time having a whole learning experience and maybe more than one where students are made aware of the fact that there are different types of questions and they begin to use them. Supporting and challenging each other's interpretations. So in this case, in the book, we provide an example of, of language and protocols. You know, because, because, you know, how do you challenge someone? When do we challenge someone? And, you know, the Hidushir, which is a cultural one, which is interesting, you know, doing this work in America, I. I had all the difficulty in my, you know, to, to get people to challenge each other's interpretation because that's not... Everybody's poli- so darn polite. It's not politically correct. You know, what do you mean to challenge? And the, the biggest Hidush was trying to get to appreciate that you challenge someone else even when you agree or you are impressed by his interpretation. To play devil's advocate to... Uh... To help, first to help right. yourself understand better, but to help even your partner understand better what he or she is worth. The Talmudic metaphor of Shnei Talmudic Chachamim Chadadin two knives sharpening, sharpening. On, on each other. So this, this, is, like, this is a whole cultural and psychological mm-hmm. I think obst- uh, challenge. Well, well, here's an in- and then what you do, you you make this to be like a topic that you you know, to together with students, you share why why would we do that? How do we do that? You provide language. You you do a fishbowl game. It, it becomes something that in the beginning is a, maybe a little bit artificial, but then you see that students really get to it and they used to it, and then it becomes. I would have folded into the regular Chavuta time in classes. Well, here's one of the interesting things I think that really differentiates what you're talking about. You, you use this term throughout the book of Chavruta text study, which I take to mean a kind of shorthand for Chavruta as you're talking about it here and not as maybe conventionally understood on the street. Mm. Uh, everybody knows what Chavruta is. You go into any Beit Midrash or any synagogue or you know certainly any yeshiva, men's yeshiva, uh, particularly. In this day, two people sit over text and they knock their heads together until they make sense of it, either the words or the 
concepts or the values or the larger the larger uh, uh, ideas uh, and it's it's uh, the metaphor that's that appears time and again throughout the Gemara of of combatants of warriors of men in the arena uh, battling out over the over the ideas sometimes until the at least metaphorical death if not in some very evocative agadot the literal death of what uh, can come about uh, through the power of the speech of, of, of learning, um, that's not a very kind of supportive, nurturing uh, 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 relationship, not at least in the kinds of ways that we think of it think of it today. And a lot of what you're talking about here is this the sixth chapter in the book is entitled Supporting and Challenging, or it might even be called Supporting versus Challenging, because not only is it the challenging, not only is it the combat in the in the arena of of Torah ideas, um, but it's it's a kind of nurturing and it's kind of supporting, and and that is I think part of what the book is adding to our kind of man on the street colloquial understanding of what Chavruta is. But I'm curious, and it doesn't really have much of a voice in the book. Um, the degree to which uh, contemporary gender studies and women's way, or in this case, quite literally, girls' ways of studying and learning um, have affected the, the discussion. Many, uh, you're, you're careful uh, throughout the book that the you know, neutral pronouns are very often she. Mm -hmm. The student or even the teacher is referred to as mm -hmm. she, and there's mm -hmm. no reason today to think that the teacher and student of Gemara wouldn't be, wouldn't be a girl. But it does seem that that uh, girls, when they're studying and learning uh, together, uh, might express themselves and might give opinions on their partner's ideas in different ways than than boys might. How does that play into all of this? Have you, in your research, have you uh, considered this and have you discovered interesting things along the way? Not in this specific research. I have had two doctoral students of mine who actually did a their PhDs on learning among women, women. Uh, and at least from 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 their work, um, although obviously the subjective perception of these women were that they are doing this very different in a very different way than men. In fact, there are we haven't at least until now uh, found significant. Uh, Differences. The range of approaches and sensitivities that you could find by men is the one that you could find by women, at least in those two works. In my own understanding, this yes, the gender is should be probably more central to this work in terms of being aware of you know how you know what certain terms even mm -hmm. and, and and practice elicit in terms of people's reactions. At the same time, I think. I would almost call this like a post-gender approach, mm -hmm. in the sense that um, in, even in some of the many theory, obviously, uh, it's not that men are supposed to be challenging and women are supposed to be supporting. I think these are two important human uh, types of engaging each other. It's it's an equivalent of chesed and and, racham, uh, and din, right? Yeah. And I think that something should be said in in terms of 
this beyond those gender sensitivities to to help people grow into those different midot in in that sense. Mm. So even challenging is a is a form of supporting in in, in that regard, right? And vice versa. Right. Right. Um, the book is uh, you know emanates from good old fashioned right proper academic research, but it also has a foot firmly in the realm of practical pedagogy. And, and as I said, uh, you know, much of the research here was road tested in actual classrooms or with actual teachers or in teacher seminars and things. And so it's this interesting balance between or, or, or bridge between the world of theory and the, and the world of practice. Uh, but for, let's imagine there is such a thing as a, an actual teacher that has to get up tomorrow and go into the classroom and is looking for some practical help because from time to time he or she will tell his students, okay, now we're going to have chavruta. And what he may have done until now was to say, okay, you know, read this perek together or, or, uh, or, uh, you know, go, go through this uh, Gemara and look at these two, two Rashis. And the students are there scratching their heads or banging their heads against each other or against the wall, trying to figure out what's, what's going on. What are some of the practical ideas a teacher might draw from mm -hmm. making the investment in, in reading this book? That, uh, well, what would you like for him to take away or her to take away from Okay, I'm going to move research? on from the most practical to the... I wouldn't say less practical, but probably more, more most important. The most practical are examples. Uh, in the appendixes, you will find an example of uh, guidelines to hand out to students for Chavuta learning, which are not only putting the emphasis on the content, but also on the Chavuta learning process uh, and helping students really actually begin to work in a more self-aware way on those practices. Um, he will find in the book, in some of the chapters, concrete examples of learning, of classes actually designed for, that, for these purposes of, of working on the practice. So these are almost uh, hands-on kind of, right. of products that he will find in the book. A, a little less immediately practical uh, product, but I would say at the longer, in the longer route, on the long route, more practical would be, I, I would like, obviously, as a, I guess every author would fantasize about that. Uh, see teachers uh, say, well, to other teachers, let, let, us, let us read this book at, at this point and, and, and talk about, about it together and see how, you know, how, in what ways do we turn this to be part of our curriculum. And not only sticking to what's in the book, but taking the basic concept of it and how do we help each other do this kind of work. I think that, that would be like, for me, the, the greatest nachat. And, and to know that people actually come up with new ideas and develop this more and in a way begin to feel that yes, Chavuta learning is not the only mode of learning and shouldn't be the only mode of learning, but it may have, has much more potential, I think, for, for learning than that what we might have been thinking until now. Um, so that would be the, 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 the second, I would say, practical. The third one, which is like a big idea that I think that goes all around the book, uh, but has no immediate hands-on product to provide people in hand. And this is the idea that the way I think I s conceptualize Chavota learning is that I very much try and am still trying not to turn this to be only a method of learning 
or an instrumental method of learning that is designed to improve people's understanding, memorization, the fluency, etc. Yes, these are all very important goals. No one is, no, uh, no one is has any doubt about that. Yet at the same time, I think, and here from what I read in in, in at least in Israeli education today, um, this is a little bit counterculture. What I'm going to say. I, I continue to believe that, and I'm going to say it first in the most traditional way, that Torah learning in its broadest sense is not only learning knowledge. It is at the end of the day, supposed in one way or another, to shape and improve human beings in all realms, spiritual, moral, self-moral. But let's say at this point, when it comes to Chavot learning, I'm, I'm not a mystic. <laughs> I, I don't, I can't just assume this is going to happen because it's Torah. And I don't think that education is like, is, is a science either. What I know from my own experience is that deep engagement in learning that is also self-reflective can make a difference. And in that regard, one of the Chidushim here, in a way, is is the, the the less practical, but probably the most, the most practical, right. is that these ways of learning, these practices, have a very deep potential for moral education. Right. In other words, moral education doesn't take only place in 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 a shiur that is designed that the content right. talks about right. values. Right. But the way you engage with your partner, with the text, and with yourself, in, and with yourself, listening, being open-minded, but does, but also being able to articulate your own hesitations, all these ways of being. In other words, the ways of doing and the ways of being. Or in the Hasidic interpretation of Naseh and Nishma, there is a Nishma that grows from within the Naseh, right? All. This entire, this entire philosophy of, of practice, I think, for me, Chavuta mm -hmm. learning becomes like one, not the only, obviously, yeah. locus yeah. Of, of, of ethical education in and through the learning. Yeah. And, and, and here I'm maybe old-fashioned, but mm -hmm. I am not ready to separate what we call formal learning from true education. Maybe you're so old-fashioned that you become postmodern. You come up around the other end. But that's, that's, I think, I couldn't write this in a book. It's an academic book, okay, but I'm not afraid to say it here. Yeah. You know, that's basically the Torah I've learned all my life since I was in Yeshiva. And I'm not saying that we are always successful, that I'm always successful, but this is what I'm right. striving for. Right. And certainly since it's not something that happens automatically, it, it does behoove us as educators uh, to be more deliberate in our practices. So, and it's a beautiful example of how, of how practice, how, how the nitty-gritty of pedagogical practice does have outcome on the larger, more affective side of, of what we aspire to, of, of developing yes. the religious personality and the religious community. And, uh, and in that regard, it's, very, uh, it's a very powerful, uh, very powerful pedagogy. It's a very powerful uh, demonstration of, of the potentials of what we're doing in our classroom. Let me just end with one final question. Uh, Chavruta, 
the historians debate, and it's referenced in the in the preface. We recently had a conversation with our friend Shaul Stamfer, mm -hmm. who's a historian of the way yeshivot were. Uh, yeah, wrote a beautiful book, and yeah. uh, and he has a rather um, he has a rather. Uh, 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 I don't know, counterintuitive, but it certainly runs counter the conventional uh, conventional um, image or nostalgia of the way Chavrut to study the way we conceive of it in Yeshivot is a rather modern thing. Obviously, the Talmud was already aware of the idea of, of Chavruta, uh, uh, but uh, the degree to which it was a mainstream pedagogy in Yeshivot is a more modern thing for reasons which I won't go into, into here. But lo mishane, it doesn't matter. Our conception of the way we have always learned going back to Moshe Rabbeinu and Yehoshua ben Nun is that people sat bechavruta and that's the way it is and that's the way it's always been fine. We can, we can nourish ourselves off of that nostalgia regardless of the historical realities. Um, but this is something that's been going on a long time. Suddenly, in the last 10 or 15 years, we see, it's, I wouldn't call it an explosion, mm -hmm. but uh, the, the, uh, the, the presence of academic research in, in, in Jewish studies, in Jewish education, on Chavruta as a pedagogy. Uh, you, of course, are, are a or the leader in the field. Your co-author, Orit Kent, and the bibliography of the book, you know, will will give the reader everything he needs to know about everything else that's been written on the subject. Even here at Atid, our uh, our colleague and fellow uh, Elisa Siegel, uh, mm -hmm. fifteen years ago already yes. uh, wrote what I think was the first monograph on the subject of Chavruta study in yes. in schools. Um, why all of a sudden? Uh, after all these many uh, millennia of learning Bechavruta, uh, did the uh, academy wake up and start uh, making it a subject of research? I have a slightly different uh, uh, um, view of, of, of the history of the recent than, than, than yours, but I, I, I may have not better data than you. My sense was that the academic interest was only second and that the, the, the first change occurred in the field. In other words, at some point, and that goes back to 20, 25 years ago, I think, in mostly in outside of the yeshiva world, and mostly in liberal, I would say, kind of, of, of Jewish learning uh, institutions, um, you could see people moving into this kind of, at least using the word Chavruta learning, and, mm -hmm. and, and developing different models to, to mm -hmm. do that. Uh, and it's only by then that the, I think the academic interest, uh, you know, was drawn to, to look at that. But I think that because it becomes a practice in elementary and secondary education, in uh, in post high school uh, seminars, in teacher education, rabbinical schools, you know, uh, even in some of the most, uh, you know, some of more liberal Jewish uh, uh, rabbinical schools. Who consider Chavuta learning to be, to belong to uh, old-fashioned Eastern European pre-modern type mm -hmm. of learning? Uh, you could can see today Chavuta learning making a comeback, which is like fascinating in terms right. of intellectual history. But if you ask me, my intuition about that is that uh, some of it is romantic. Obviously, they're looking for the authentic Jewish way of learning. To which I, I'm usually, my, my line is, you know, that's fine, but that's not enough, you know, because Jews did amazing things, but they may have been doing stupid things also. So, uh, it's not a good, it's not enough. Nostalgia is not enough right, to, it's not a good enough to direct reason. our practice. I mean, so, so but, but more than that, I think we are in an age where I think uh, people are 
we, we, we hear the language. People looking f to help other people to make personal connections and meaning, to voice their own voices, to, to, to contribute something to, 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 to the tradition in terms of, of insights and, and etc. And, and I think naturally, Chavuta learning, in the wake of also of collaborative learning in, in general education, was like a Jewish version of that, mm -hmm. which I think is a great development for Jewish learning. Having said that, um, so often have I seen in the field institutions or classrooms that have adopted some, some form of Chavuta learning, and, and it was done three months later, because after the excitement of the change for the purpose of change, or the excitement of the romantic side of it, mm, not it nothing was happening, actually. Uh, and, and, and this is what I'm trying to say, in other words, this is one extraordinary method, and it has meant multiple existential, I think, and I would even say theological, which I didn't discuss in the book, mm -hmm. layers. Uh, so let's us take it seriously and, and, and approach it carefully. Uh, there is no blueprint how to do it, but it doesn't mean that everything goes. And let us let us use that to serve our educational purposes. Um, and in that regard, I think um, I myself have been obviously also uh, enriched by the development in in the general field in terms of collaborative learning. I, I think, I mean, one of the greatest uh, moments of Nachat, if I could say so, of, of this work when was when I heard a very prominent uh, person in, in general education in, in the United States saying that there is something in this work that contributes to a certain view of liberal learning at its best also. Mm -hmm. And he meant the classical liberal learning. Yeah. Uh, so that's an interesting, that's an interesting and, and promising, I think, shiduch, uh, without wanting to reduce one to it to the other. But uh, in, in other words, let us try to to have chavut learning not only to be a fashion of the last two decades and maybe another one until we move to the next thing, but to to take it for what it has to us to offer to us. And a lot of what it has to offer to us is already in our tradition. Ellie Holzer is a senior lecturer and a director of the Curriculum Studies Unit at the School of Education at Bar Ilan University. The book is A Philosophy of Chevruta, Understanding and Teaching the Art of Text Study in Pairs, co-authored with Orit Kent, published by the Academic Studies Press. Thank you very much. Thank you.